Hello everyone and welcome to the 17th episode of the Connectivity Podcast. I'm Matthias Friedström and I've spent the last 25 years inside the connectivity community. In this pod, we invite guests to deep dive into one or many subjects to simply learn more about connectivity. In this 17th episode, I'm extremely happy to have Rudolf Gordon Seymour from Telecom Sans Frontières as my guest. So, welcome, Rudolf. Thanks, uh, thanks, Matthias, and uh, thanks very much for the uh, invitation uh, to this uh, podcast series. Yeah. So, for everyone that doesn't know you, who are you? Well, um, I'm just a kind of humble telecoms guy um, who worked in telecoms for 20 years um, in a, a profit uh, organization and uh, decided to um, take a break and join a non-profit uh, NGO. All right. Um, after, uh, after moving, after making a decision to uh, to move uh, to France. Okay. Yeah. So, so you work for a company called uh, Telecom Sans Frontier. So, for anyone that doesn't know them, you know what what is it that you do? Um, well, basically, um, Telecom Sans Frontier um, have actually been around for twenty three years now, and, and em- embarrassingly, um, I hadn't heard of them um, after twenty years in telecoms. Um, so it was kind of a surprise to me. And I, I, I was kind of looking to, uh, join an organization, um, an NGO organization, but perhaps an organization that was a communication based organization of which, um, there are not many communication based NGOs in the world. And indeed telecoms from Frontier, um, was actually uh, one of the first to provide those services, um, in the world and in the field. So they started. They started life uh, back in the late '90s um, after the uh, the Balkans crisis, and the founders, the founders of Telecoms and Frontier, were doing kind of more traditional humanitarian work, um, and they realised that there was this kind of urgent need for communication, and they had people, families, coming up to them with telephone numbers, asking if they could contact their relatives. Um, and it kind of just started from that. Um, and then that w- Telecoms and Frontier was formed in order to deploy uh, into natural disasters, man-made disasters in the world and provide much needed communications for, you know, the displaced population um, and also um, other NGOs on the ground uh, in order to assist um, and help them coordinate their operations. All right. And that's that's where it started. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we'll come back on that on, on that topic a bit more later on. But you've when when it comes to you, you know, you said you've been twenty years in the telecom industry. Why did you end up in the telecom industry? Oh, absolutely by chance. I mean, I I <laughs> I did a business degree. I was absolutely sure that I wanted to go into marketing, um, and uh, I just kind of fell into uh, uh, working for a U.S. telecoms company called uh, uh, Infinet Corporation, um, which was uh, uh, an offshoot of the the Computer Sciences Corporation uh, based in Los Angeles. Um, so I, I I started working for them in 1995 as a, a global technical support analyst, 
um, which was a, a real baptism of fire when you've just left university um, and you're having to deal with uh, uh, financial institutions and voice and dealer boards uh, breaking. Um, so that that's kind of where I where I started, and and that company later actually got bought by British Telecom. Uh, and then after five years, I, I kind of made the decision actually to join a a startup. Um, company and at the time that was called European Telecommunications and Technology, which later morphed after many mergers and acquisitions into GTT Communications. Um, and I worked in the operations and uh, I looked after the global operations um, for GTT um, and left them in two at the end of 2014, beginning of 2015. Um, after you know 13, 14 very. Um, exciting um, years. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I guess a lot of things have changed since you joined the industry. I kind of joined the industry in 1996. So what do you feel has changed the most, you know, from, from your early days to where we are now? Well, I mean, you know, I'm kind of more of a kind of traditional kind of telecoms kind of guy. So obviously for me, it's just the sheer size of uh, bandwidth and traffic. Um, you know, I mean, I start when I started, it was, um, X25, yep. um, you know, and, uh, <laughs> we, you know, we were running 300 bits per second if we were lucky. Um, mm. so to then leave, you know, by the time I'd left, um, that environment, you know, we were selling, you know, 10 gig services to private companies, um, yep. which, uh, which I still, you know, even today, I just find amazing. And also just the sheer amount of traffic, IP traffic and internet traffic, which is, which is phenomenal. Yeah. So, um, and obviously, you know, the technologies evolved um, fairly quickly, actually, over that time, because I think there was a, from X25 um, into the IP world, that was a, you know, that was a huge kind of leap and a real game changer. Um, and then, you know, th you know, in between that was frame relay. I'm kind yeah, of remembering yeah, yeah. <laughs> stuff. Um, uh, but yeah, that, that was kind of a real game changer. And then obviously moved on to, you know, MPLS from there. So, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's been a journey. I, I can agree with you on that one. Okay. So let's go back to Telecom Sans Frontier, you know, what is it really that you do guys? What is it that you do? Well, I think um, we're probably uh, better known for the emergency deployments and the missions that we carry out. So uh, in the event of a, a natural disaster, you know, we will make a very quick initial assessment back at the headquarters in France and then uh, make a decision to deploy a team. Uh, normally, um, it starts with a team of two or three and we try uh, we try to get um, deployed within 24 hours of the disaster. So a lot of the time we're the first um, NGO on the ground, um, which is actually quite important um, given that we're kind of communi communications based. So um, we're there maybe before other NGOs um, and we will basically set up calling um, support centers um, for displaced populations. Um, obviously the first week of any deployment, um, a lot of assessments will be made Generally, we will go out with kind of an instant network satellite type based solution um, to support um, voice and data. Um, but that may kind of evolve during that deployment, depending, you know, what the needs are. So the emergency deployments of which, you know, there have been, you know, over 140 
um, in in the last 22, 23 years um, across over 70 uh, countries. Wow! So um, it's quite a few emergency deployments, and 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 countries where we've actually where there's been repeat deployments, and more recently uh, the earthquake in Haiti, uh, which we deployed a team of four to um, in August. Mm. Um, that was ten years um, after the really big um, yeah. earthquake hit Haiti, and that was one of our. Um, biggest deployments um, 10 years ago. So it was kind of important for us to kind of go out again and, and support that. Uh, and we put network in place for uh, Medicine Sans Frontier as well mm-hmm. um, on the ground. So that's kind of, that's the emergency deployment side. Mm-hmm. And then the other side, which probably doesn't get as much um, publicity, um, are the kind of the longer term projects. Um, which could be around supporting uh, migration, refugees, uh, and educational programs, and they're kind of long-term programs. Okay. So, what what kind of triggers you to do something? You know, what is it that makes you go? Well, it's it, it's um, we're part of the uh, United Nations kind of emergency um, cluster. Mm-hmm. So uh, sometimes we will get um, a request to deploy. Um, from the UN and other times we have to kind of make that decision based on the information we see. We are linked in with systems in terms of that monitor and track uh, environmental situations um, like typhoons and hurricanes. Mm-hmm. So we actually we monitor um, those quite closely um, so we can kind of be ready for a deployment and make sure the equipment's working tested and the teams are available. Um, so there's a certain amount of proactiveness, but typhoons and hurricanes have a habit of changing course. So it, it's not um, it's not always um, guaranteed <laughs> that it will be um, hitting uh, the city uh, where you think it might hit. But uh, so yeah, we're 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 fairly proactive in 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 that respect. Mm-hmm. Are there any limitations there? You know, places you wouldn't go to, or or so on. Um, well, I think uh, I don't think there are any limitations. I mean, I, I think um, certainly no real limitations on natural disasters. And um, but you do have situations where um, governments don't actually want your assistance. Mm-hmm. So you know that's a kind of a barrier uh, straight away. It doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. And there is kind of bureaucracy around mm-hmm. that. On the man-made disaster front, obviously the limitation could be uh, how dangerous a deployment could be yeah so um obviously we're not gonna put our engineers in you know extreme danger on the ground yeah so 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 kind of war zones and that stuff that's not, yeah exactly yeah. yeah okay so you talked about this you know as you said you know this more unknown stuff the education and the, the digital mm. skills to refugees and so on could you just tell us a bit more about that you know what is it what does it encompass well we um so basically the uh we, we've we've run a few um education programs around the world probably um uh, the most well-known one is probably for syrian child refugees um you know and there's about it's about four hundred thousand wow. child syrian yeah. refugees yeah um who had to migrate um from syria and obviously this happened you know it started 10 years ago and we've, we've been in Syria and Turkey for for 10 years now. Um, So they've kind of had to migrate to um, camps and centers um, on the border in Turkey 
um, for safety. And what we did was create um, uh, education centres there um, and a curriculum um, for you know children between you know six and and seventeen um, to be able to actually uh, learn different, um, mainly ICT-based type um, uh, education, because some of them, are, you know, had a huge gap in, in their education, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps, uh, you know, up to, you know, seven, eight years yep. without any education. So the, the, the curriculums that we put forward are very much, you know, custom and tailored towards those, those needs. Um, and that's that's still ongoing today, and we've kind of developed that over time. So, okay, oh, well, that's interesting. If we go back to one of these assignments, as you said, you know, you mentioned Haiti is one of them. Mm. Where, how, how do you really start? You know, where where do you have your people? Are they just sitting at home waiting f- to go? Or, or uh? well, um, <laughs> well, it's good. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, they they uh, generally they they be in the office. I mean, we we have our we're headquartered in France. We have representation in Asia and South America um, as well. So um, depending where the disaster may strike is dependent on who is actually deployed and who can get there the quickest. So um, everyone's kind of uh, um, prepared for deployment um, at, at all times. But, you know, it's quite common for me to, you know, come in the office uh, on a Monday and then, um, see one of the engineers and they may be gone on an aeroplane, you know, by the evening at mm-hmm. very short notice. I mean, it's, um, uh, it takes a certain type of person to be able to do and carry out a deployment. Um, you have to be, um, fully available, uh, ready at all times and be able to travel at very short notice. Yeah. And I guess, I guess when these people then go, what type of equipment do they bring with them, you know, and, and where do you get that equipment from? So the, I mean, we'll, we'll carry out a very quick initial assessment of what the needs may be and, you know, just how big the, the, the natural disaster or man-made disaster uh, could be. Invariably, we'll carry, I mean, we're very much satellite-based in terms of our, mm. our communication um, networks and setups. So they will bring... Uh, an instant network type kit with them, which is uh, basically a a satellite um, solution that fits in um, a large suitcase and can be set up, you know, rapidly, you know, within within an hour on the ground. Okay, and and what is it that they do with these satellite equipment? Sort of, what what, what is it that you provide to the people there? Or, or? So um, we will provide, uh, we could, it could be anything, uh, it could be a mix of voice and data. We could create a, uh, a, a mini network on the ground there. Uh, we can create a, a GSM network as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do a lot of voice over IP, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and But what we're seeing now and maybe how things have kind of trends have changed is um even in the developing world, most people have a smartphone. Mm. In the old days, we used to be carrying a lot of satellite phones mm. with us, and we would offer, you know, a free um, three-minute call to mm. uh, people in need. But now, what we're finding more and more is people want to just be able to connect to our network, um, especially because we we have to make the assumption that the uh, local infrastructure may be broken. Yep. and not working and we also have to assume that maybe there's going to be power problems as well 
Mm. Um, so we have to be we have to be very self sufficient and have to put together some pretty um, interesting um, kind of custom solutions um, on the ground with the equipment that we use. Yeah, no, I can really see that. And of course, social media has, you know, 25 years ago didn't really exist. And now it's, as you said, you know, so how do you handle that? Is that really what people are after, you know, being able to update on Facebook that they're okay? Or, or what is it that? Yeah, I mean, generally, yeah. I mean, um, uh, it's generally around messaging platforms. So, you know, we see a lot of Messenger and, and WhatsApp, um, I think are probably the most common um globally that people are using so um you know we just have to make sure that we can manage that um traffic and those those applications um because you know obviously we we are limited in terms of the bandwidth that we may have available um on the satellite um and it's not obviously the cheapest solution um to communicate with so um we have to kind of manage that you know very carefully uh but really try and maximize the amount of traffic that we can push through those pipes um, and maximize the amount of people that we can actually support. Mm. I actually read, read when I read about you, I read that you actually have developed some of your own communication kits to prevent bandwidth heavy applications and stuff to, to, to take care of this. Yeah. I mean, you know, a, quite a large part of um, telecoms and frontiers certainly because we're pretty, as you can, uh, as you'd expect, we're pretty heavy on the engineering side. Yeah. Um, and and technical side. So, it, you know, when when the teams are not um, on a deployment uh, or on a mission, um, then they're kind of back at base, actually doing a lot of R and D work. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the uh, off the shelf equipment that we use um, really needs to be adapted to the field mm-hmm. because it it's not really kind of mission ready. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, you go into the office and you see a lot of um, equipment just taken apart, rebuilt, new power supplies added, and and that's you know that's part of what they do. Uh, on on the other equipment side, we have developed a, a kind of a field uh, router um, called Oxford, which kind of um, man is a uh, manages the traffic from a QoS uh, point of view. And enables us to kind of do um, application filtering uh, more effectively. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of kind of uh, R and D um, and kind of uh, custom bits of equipment that we may use, mm. or or indeed adapt. Mo- yeah. Most of it is adapting equipment. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that goes on as a kind of a sidetrack to this is, of course, the development of satellites again. You know, I would say 10 years ago, we never talked about satellites. It was everything in fiber because that was so mm. much faster. Now with sort of Starlink and Amazon and Facebook are talking about satellites again. Is that something that you guys are talking to them about as well? Or, or oh, would oh, that be? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think um, low orbit kind of satellite mm. broadband is really exciting. Um Certainly for someone like Telecoms on Frontier, because um, it potentially can provide, you know, a faster, more cost effective communication solution for us um, and hopefully also cheaper um, as yeah. well. So um, and we we're, we're kind of testing um, uh, those solutions at the moment. Mm. And it also may give us the ability to, you know, deploy 
more quickly or create the network um, whilst we're on the ground. Um, so quicker turnarounds on that. So uh, yeah, low orbit satellite program for us is a kind of very exciting development because you know you know historically we've we've relied on the more kind of traditional satellite uh, methods and and also you know fixed satellite as well in terms of VSAT. So when you when you go to these assignments, you know what what do you think is the What's the biggest obstacle? You know, what is it that you you struggle with most of the times? What's the what's the difficult part here? Um, well, I think you know, I mean, the kind of the heroes of CSF, the engineers who go out on the deployments. Yeah, so not mm. not me, not me. Mm. Um, it's the engineers. Um, but obviously, I speak to them frequently, yeah. um, and when we see the deployment reports, and I, I think every every mission, every deployment is different. You know, mm. there's no kind of vanilla deployment um, mm. you can do i mean certainly in terms of the equipment we use may be kind of standardized to a point but the environmentals when you get on the ground um you don't really always know what what you're going to expect um and i think not only you know have the engineers got to focus on putting a solution together uh, but they've also got to look after themselves as well they've got to feed yep. themselves and shelter themselves so um, it, it's not, you know, it's uh, it's not uncommon. Um, I mean, I, I remember having a conversation a few years ago after the hurricanes, uh, Hurricane Dorian in the Palms, and the, you know, one of the engineers said to me, "Yeah, we were we were sleeping on a supermarket floor for, you know, like three days." You know, wow. Um, so it's, I, I think, um, I think the combination um, of factors, you know, obviously makes any deployment. Um, very challenging. Um, sometimes transportation can be um, quite a challenge once you actually get onto the ground, um, and you need to actually reach the affected area. Mm. Um, so the international portion normally is fairly straightforward, but it's actually that well in telecoms it's that last mile, right? Mm. <laughs> um, and in a deployment, that's no different, and that that. That can be quite challenging. Um, certainly, you know, we may have to rely on military support in terms of mm. transport um, to get to certain areas. And, you know, in the developing countries, you know, the infrastructure, even before disasters, won't necessarily be that great. So mm. uh, during a disaster, you kind of expect it to be almost zero. Thanks everyone for listening. In the next episode, we will continue to talk to Rudolf Gordon Seymour. So stay tuned until next time. Please also remember the Twitter handle ConnectivityPod for updates.